0: Section seventy nine of Germany, the Netherlands, and Switzerland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philip Watson. The World's Story, Volume Seven Germany, the Netherlands, and Switzerland. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section seventy nine The American Revolution in Holland by hendrick wilhelm van loon when after a few years it seemed that the american colonies were actually going to start a new commonwealth entirely independent of the mother country large vistas of new commercial advantages opened themselves up to the dutch merchants up to the beginning of the revolution the american colonists had been obliged to trade directly with england alone and England had been careful that the colonists should not enter upon business which would compete with the business of her subjects at home. If they gained their independence, the colonists would then be able to deal with whomever they pleased, and the Republic hoped to get her share of the American trade. During the last thirty years, so many old fields of enterprise had been gradually lost to her that a new opening would be extremely welcome. This practical sentiment was reciprocated in America. Those excellent colonists, were at all times infinitely more practical than the European sentimentalist could imagine them to be. They were practical politicians. The theory of their revolution never for a moment allowed them to forget the bread-and-butter side of it. Their hard common sense never allowed them to go off into any extremes which did not stand fundamentally upon a sound basis of one dollar plus one dollar or two dollars the french revolution with its sublime indifference to the material side of life and with its exaggerated sentiment about uplifting the whole of the human race to its own ideals was conducted upon entirely different principles the american revolutionists knew what they wanted better than other rebels either before or after have known they did one thing at a time and did not waste their energies in senseless dreams of the far distant future for the moment their most imperative need was guns and materials of war generally they had no regular fleet and few merchant ships on the sea they were at the mercy of the english fleet the dutch smugglers were therefore of great benefit to them in supplying them with the necessities of war from the small island of st eustatius in the antilles a possession of the west india company a regular smuggling trade was maintained with american ports the island had a fine harbour and its storehouses were filled with millions of dollars worth of goods ready for transportation to forbidden harbours either spanish or american this trade was quite as detrimental to the interests of england as the american export of mules for south africa was detrimental to the interests of the late transvaal republic in august of the year 1775 therefore the British government instructed its representative in The Hague to address himself to the Estates General with the request that this smuggling from a Dutch harbour should forthwith be ended. The Estates General expressed their regret at the matter and promised to attend to it at once. They promulgated an edict which forbade the export of guns and all materials of war from Dutch harbours for a period of six months. A fine of 1,000 guilders was threatened to be levied upon those who should act contrary to this law. After the first six months, this edict was prolonged for another half-year. As for its practical results, they were nil. There was too much profit in the business to stop it with the mere threat of a fine. Furthermore, all the tricks of this particular trade were well known and how could the estates general surmise that barrels of butter directed to a french port in reality contained powder and were bound for an american harbor they could have discovered this of course if they had really wished but they hesitated to interfere too seriously with a form of business activity which however objectionable brought so much gain to many of their fellow-citizens and to themselves when the british government noticed how ineffectual the estates general had been in preventing a continuation of this detrimental smuggling business it decided to take matters into its own hands and to defend its own interests as it thought best the english fleet in the caribbean sea was strengthened with a number of new ships and all dutch vessels were searched and if found to contain contraband of war were brought to english ports and there sold this did not improve the feelings between the two countries england resented the republic's indifference the republic resented england's interference france however looked on with interest and rejoiced in her need of soldiers england now asked holland for the loan of a certain scottish brigade which had been in the dutch service since fifteen seventy seven the dutch objected england might possibly forget to send them back and moreover by waiting a while a larger price might be commanded for their services finally the dutch agreed to grant england's request but on condition that the brigade should not be used outside of europe england decided that the troops were not necessary but she did not forget england had been most unhappy in the choice of her diplomatic representative in the hague sir joseph yorke belonged to that class of arrogant british diplomats who at all times and in all countries have by their overbearing behaviour done so much to prevent a good understanding between their home country and the land to which they were accredited he was very honest and belonged to that order of honest people who always speak the truth when it does most harm and is least called for he represented a country which was then at the height of its glory the foremost nation of europe but he represented it in a country which was then rapidly going towards the lowest depths it would ever reach sir joseph unfortunately had the bad tact to let the hollanders continually feel their changed condition and was very apt to treat the estates-general as if they existed only by sufferance of his british majesty the tradition of many centuries had established a privileged position for the british minister in the hague he was often called upon to be the unofficial adviser of the stadtholders who were so closely related to the british throne from the very beginning however sir joseph could not get along with the friends of the young stadtholders the stadtholder himself he soon considered a negligible quantity a man who had to be protected occasionally against his enemies who were also the enemies of england the stadtholder on his side was afraid of the grouchy old Briton, who would address him without any ceremony, who would ask such pertinent questions that it was next to impossible to tell him a lie, or to spar for time in which to get up an appropriate answer. Neither did William like to be reminded at all times of his complete dependence upon England for a secure hold upon his own high office. The princess who had not yet played any political role being too much occupied with her nursery disliked the englishman from the beginning and always kept out of his way with the regents sir joseph got along even worse their high and mightiness each one a little potentate in his own small circle had to be handled with great care a mistake in the correct title by which they expected to be addressed might cause no end of annoyance Sir Joseph, who went right ahead, regardless of other people's feelings, was continually stepping on everybody's sensitive toes. Instead of flattering the regents and cajoling them into complying with his wishes, he used to tell them abruptly what he wanted and then would expect them to do as he desired. Whenever his requests were not immediately granted, he used to rumble with the British thunder and threaten the Republic with the terrible things that might happen, if the just demands of his british majesty's government should be disregarded the regents retaliated by most exasperating slowness and all their dealings with sir joseph they never said no they never gave him a chance to call forth the storm which was to destroy them but neither did they ever say yes they let his excellency know that the matter was under discussion and then they gave him a few months in which to cool off his anger a proceeding which usually had an effect opposite to that intended in this way the misunderstanding between the two countries was continually increased on the side of the republic there was a good deal of insolence and a prejudiced desire to see everything british in as bad a light as possible on the side of england there was a good deal of just cause for annoyance but also an insolent disregard of the feelings of its neighbour the only person who benefited by all this quarrelling was the french minister d'affray had been called back and had been succeeded by a young diplomat the duc de vaugouillon paul francois de goulain duc de vaugouillon son of the former governor of louis the fourteenth was only thirty years old when he was sent to the hague what he lacked in experience he made up for by a charming personality and by a large personal fortune which he used most liberally for his diplomatic purposes he never bothered about the stadtholder he did not even take the trouble to oppose him, but left him in peace and used all his influence towards establishing a firm friendship with the regents. To the regents his palace and his purse were open at all times, and around his excellent dinners he used to collect as many of them as were willing to come. Von der Capellen and his democratic friends he carefully avoided it is true that a good many frenchmen at that moment shared the republic's popular enthusiasm for the americans and for everything american up to the wearing of hats and coats à l'Américain. but such enthusiasm was considered a pastime for fashionable people for those who were not fashionable the system of by the grace of god was considered good enough and was rigorously maintained even when in seventeen seventy eight france entered into a treaty with the americans this was done not so much out of an abstract love for those principles which the americans were supposed to defend as in the hope of earning sweet revenge for the loss of canada his excellency the french ambassador had not been sent to the republic for sentimental reasons his duty was to get the republic away from england and to force her into an alliance with france for france needed money and with the impending expedition to america would soon need more and the republic possessed those indispensable funds de vaugouillon therefore took great pains to get into the right relationship with the banking interests of the country in amsterdam he had a host of friends gradually he established for himself the position of unofficial head of all those among the regents who opposed the stadtholder outwardly however he maintained correct relations with william for the prince of orange was an excellent weapon with which to menace the regents should they show themselves unmanageable de voguillon could always threaten to throw france's influence in favor of their enemy the stadtholder in one word the french minister did a very clever piece of balancing between the different parties wherever sir joseph by his boorishness had made new enemies de voguillon was sure to appear and by the charm of his manner turned the insulted parties into his firm and everlasting friends wherever the dutch merchants were loud in their complaints about the british and denounced their brusque methods of dealing with the smuggling trade they were informed of the benefits that would result if only they were willing to leave an ally who no longer behaved as such and throw their fate in with that of magnanimous france circumstances greatly favoured the frenchmen in the west indies the relations between dutch and english grew steadily from bad to worse not only had england increased her fleet in the caribbean sea but she had also hinted to her merchants at home and abroad that a little privateering at the expense of the dutch would not be punished with the gallows and might even be looked upon with favour by the authorities at home and the patriotic British shipowners from Bristol and Plymouth and all the many seaports along the English coast had caught the hint and had started chasing Dutch ships wherever they could find them. The Caribbean Sea was soon full of respectable buccaneers who stomped and plundered whatever ships fell into their hands in the interest of the mother country. Let us at least pay tribute to their impartiality they took quite as many french spanish and danish as they did dutch ships whenever they could not find anything on the sea they were apt to extend their opportunities to the south american continent england still refused to recognize the united states as an independent nation and wherever american ships were found in dutch harbors the english quietly declared them their prizes upon one occasion an english privateer met an american merchantman going from surinam to virginia the american ship fled and returned to the coast where it was captured under the very nose of a dutch fortress and a dutch man-of-war loud was the well which the dutch press made about this attack upon dutch sovereignty and the insult offered to the captain of the dutch ship who when he tried to demand an explanation of the english captain was told to get out or take care that he did not get shot too the matter was immediately carried to the attention of sir joseph but his excellency had waited for just such an occasion to say what was in his mind the estates general so he told them might as well know once and for all that the king of england his august master had decided that in the future he would exercise what was merely his good right everywhere and under all conditions the king therefore intended to attack the rebellious americans wherever his majesty's arms or fleet could find them and would inflict due punishment upon all those who either supported said americans or who gave them hospitality finally his majesty thought that it would be of much greater advantage to his country to have open and duly recognized enemies than to have so-called allies who provided his majesty's rebellious subjects with all the contraband of war they needed sir joseph did not do things by halves the hint which he gave was broad enough the republic in this period of her history was playing a miserable role she openly encouraged the enemies of her ally in order to make some money she so neglected her fortifications that her harbours were at the mercy of any english catboat that ventured to sail across the ocean when in consequence of this dishonest policy the republic finally got into trouble she knew no way to get redress but by allowing her hired scribes to vilify england and to call the british minister a bore meanwhile everybody in the republic was asking everybody else why is not something being done why does not the stadtholder send out a fleet to protect our interests are we always going to be at the mercy of this british insolence just that sort of question was asked in athens when sparta destroyed its prosperity and in rome when the barbarians swooped down upon the outlying provinces why is not something being done as a matter of fact the stadtholder did try to do something there were plans and discussions about sending a fleet of twenty ships to the caribbean sea to defend the dutch colonies and protect the merchantmen against the english privateers the first question was where to find twenty ships the second where to find the sailors with which to man the twenty ships not only was there a lack of funds with which to build ships but the renewed activity in the smuggling business and the high wages paid to the sailors who engaged in it caused a scarcity of men for the fleet which no promise of a high enlistment premium could remedy after many months of delay however eight ships were made more or less seaworthy and equipped for the trip across the atlantic in the last month of seventeen seventy seven this small fleet under command of count louis von bylent sailed to south america with strict orders to protect only the legitimate trade bylent had no orders to suppress the illegitimate trade therefore while he defended the dutch merchantmen against the english privateers he did nothing to stop the export of contraband goods to the united states from an english point of view therefore the dutch fleet was only another insult to great britain and had no other purpose than to encourage mr george washington to continue in his rebellious conduct chance only prevented an open outbreak at that time from both sides everything was being done to create mutual ill-will as we have seen before one of the governors of st eustatius the big department store of the american revolution had been called back upon a number of complaints by the english and had been replaced by a certain De Graf this de graff as we also have had a chance to remark was a very common individual and saw his only duty in making the greatest profit in the shortest time as he was a man of great commercial industry and no integrity whatsoever his activities were all the more detrimental to the reputation of the island of which he happened to be governor one of his first acts caused no end of irritation in england on the sixteenth of november seventeen seventy six a ship flying the american flag entered the harbor of st eustatius the governor though he knew that the american colonies were not yet recognized as an independent nation ordered his men to find a gun that could be fired and to salute the new flag since the american revolution has been successful and everything has come out as well as the most ardent american patriot could hope this act of de graff is lauded as the first honor which the nations of the world paid to the free and enlightened commonwealth of the west at that moment however the act of de graff was a decided breach of tact committed against a friendly nation and it is no wonder that england resented it when the matter was reported to the hague via london sir joseph in his usual way made a great ado about it even when making the most reasonable complaint he had the unhappy faculty of irritating everybody to the point where they felt that they and not he were the persons who had suffered an injustice in this case however the fact could not possibly be denied the estates general followed the only course open to them and ordered de graff to be recalled the investigation of his conduct was dragged along in the customary way from all sides pressure was being brought to bear upon the authorities not to let such a valuable man be lost soon de Graff complained that his health after so many years in the tropics could not stand the strain of the dutch climate he was then allowed to return to his old home and was reinstated as governor of st eustatius neither england's remonstrance nor sir joseph's violence of language had done the slightest good Everything remained as before. The Dutch smuggled, the English buccaneered. The stadtholder grew pale in the face and stammered apologies. Sir Joseph grew red in the face and bellowed revenge. Finally, events took their natural course, and war broke out between the Republic and England. End of section 79. This recording is in the public domain.